And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter. I'm one of the members here at Akasha River Church. Praise the Lord. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 139. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible and you do need a Bible, please raise your hand and there's some folks that will pass you uh, a Bible to use. I'll be reading and using the New International Version Bible uh, version, but it's similar enough so that all should be able to follow. Uh, But for those of you who choose to use electronic Bibles, that's what I'll be using. I'm going to pray. Father, we just praise you because you are so great and so good. Hallowed be your name. This morning, glorify your son in us. Glorify your son in the preaching of the word so that we would grow in faith and hope and love and be sanctified in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have Psalm 139, please say amen. If you don't have Psalm 139, oh me. All right, we're all there. And so let's take a look at this psalm. I want to walk you through it, and we're going to draw out an outline in the process. I'm going to read the whole of it. For the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. God's word is so good. Uh, This psalm has just been so refreshing to me uh, through the week. And my prayer and hope is that it'll be refreshing for you. There's a couple of things that I want to bring to your attention before we start explaining the psalm so that you can actually understand it a little bit better. Uh, For those of you who are just dropping in this morning as visitors, we've been in a series through the psalms 
Uh, the Psalms, I believe, is the longest book in the, in, in the Bible. Maybe not. I might be wrong about that one. But it is a very long book. It has a, there's 150 Psalms. Uh, psalms, um, by virtue, are, um, they are songs. They are hymns. Um, some are prayers. And there's a variety of them. Some are hymns of praise. Some of lament. Uh, some are called imprecatory, where the, the psalmist expresses anger. Uh, some of the psalms express some aspects of wisdom literature. The psalm that we're looking at this morning doesn't fit neatly into any of those categories because it has elements of so many, um, and, which is really interesting for one of the psalms, as you will see. Uh, this psalm was, as you can see from the beginning of the psalm, you might see the, le- the words for the director of music of David, a psalm. Do you see that? That's called a superscript. Uh, that wasn't actually written by the psalmists themselves. The psalms as we have them now were compiled during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they were coming back from being in exile for 70 years, and they collected them in a book for the purpose of worship as they were reestablishing the temple. So this psalm um, is identified as having been written by David, and it's for the purpose of community worship. The people of God were meant to use these psalms to sing and praise God for his goodness. So like all songs, you read it in a kind of a way, understanding that it has poetic elements, right? You're not reading it as you would um, some kind of prose or like one of uh, the letters written by the Apostle Paul. It's, it's poetic. It's music. And it's supposed to engage not just your mind, but really to engage your heart. And not just you as an individual, but all of us together, we want to have our hearts engaged in loving God with all our souls, all of our hearts and mind and strength. Amen. So if you look at the very first verse, you'll see, you have searched me, Lord. Uh, Remind me, there's something I want to say about David a little bit later. But it says, you have searched me, Lord. If you notice this in your Bible, the name Lord is in all capital letters. Do you see that? Yes? Amen. You can talk to me. It's okay. So when you see all capitals, that's a little bit different than when you see it in normal writing with capital L-O-R-D. Underneath this word Lord, and I've shared this before, but not, all, not everyone has heard. Underneath of this is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses was to lead the children of Israel out of their slavery or bondage to Egypt. And so you can read about that in Exodus chapter 3. And let's actually take a look at that for a moment. Exodus chapter 3. Okay, we're going to start at verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he had led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is a holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord, all caps, said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are pressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you you have brought the people out of Egypt, 
brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Amen. So that's a lot of reading, I know. But I want to bring out the context when this name is given. It is a covenant name. And covenant is like an agreement between, um, back in those times, it'd be between a king and lesser kings. But it's also used in the Bible to describe God's relationship with humanity, with human beings. So God, when he decided to bring out his people, those people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were in captivity and bondage, he decided to reveal something about himself. And that is, I am that I am sent I am that I am is the one who is sending you and who is rescuing you, my people, out of bondage. So when you see that name, Lord, we are talking about a very specific God. So now let's go back to Psalm 139. It will be helpful for you to keep a marker in 139. We're going to move around, but we'll always come back to 139. So David is a king under this covenant, and God has said to David, under you, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom. So here we have it at the very beginning. David, a great king, through whom God is going to establish an everlasting kingdom, and the Lord, I am that I am. So when you see Lord, that name sounds like I am in Hebrew, okay? So I want you to be able to connect those dots, so let's read and, and think about this a little bit. It reads, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And so the psalm begins off with this, this very uh, clear statement that God knows him. If you were taking notes, you can say, the Lord knows me. And this word search can also mean examine. And the idea of sifting through and looking at very closely. And David, he begins to describe how God knows him in a poetic way. He says, you know when I sit down, and you know when I rise. I see, these are two um, extreme actions. One is sitting, and one is rising. And this is a, a type of, of, of a phrase, of, a turn of speech that's poetic. And so David is not just saying, not only do you know when I sit and I rise, but you know everything in between. You know all my actions. And then he reads, he says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And the idea here is not about distance. The idea is that God perceives our thoughts in time. That is, even before we think our thoughts, before we have any kind of intent, he sees them way, way off. Oh, Peter's going to think that. And this is why he's going to think that. And then he says, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. So some of you who know me uh, might know me as a bit of a night owl. Um, you know, I, my, my sleep is just funny. So sometimes I'll go to a park and listen to a sermon or there's some places I'll go to and I'll read. And um, sometimes I'll leave, leave late at night and my mom, who's been living with me the last several years, will say, hey, Peter, where are you going? And I'll say, I'm going to church. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's our little joke. But God knows where I'm going. There's nothing about me in terms of my movements, day or night, that God is not familiar with. And it's the same is true of you. There's no place that you go, good or bad, secret or public, that God isn't aware of. And he says, you discern my, my going out to my lying down. The idea here is of, of someone who's harvesting and going through the harvest to get the good grain. He gets to the kernel of the matter. So he not only knows what you do, but he knows why you do it. He not only knows what you're saying, 
but all the shades of meaning that you might have with you, behind what you're saying. And as you can see, verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. That's quite a, that's quite a grasp of knowledge. He goes on verse 5, and it kind of, he kind of is expressing his feeling, this kind of knowledge about him. He says, you hem me in behind and before. This idea of him can be, it can be used almost like a, a battle term, like a, a town that's besieged by an army and surrounded. It can also be used in a less aggressive way as just being encircled or enclosed. But the idea is that you're not going anywhere. God has full knowledge of you if completely without question. There's not any bit of your history in the past or the, how you've interacted with other folks, anything going on in your mind and heart right now, or anything in your future that's not known to God. Now, for some people, this would be um, um, rather uncomfortable. But the David here is, he's referring to him as Lord. He's in covenant with God. So this is not just any person just praying and talking to God. This is a man who knows God and is using a covenant name to refer to as God. He knows that this God is the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows that this is the God that promised to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He knows that this is the God who changed Jacob into Israel and had 12 sons and built up a mighty nation. He knows that this people was taken into captivity and how God brought them out with his power. He is a man who knows God and he knows that this is a God that rescues his people. He brought them out of slavery. He could have let them die off in slavery and captivity and just be forgotten in the annals of history. Maybe some archaeologists would know about them, but no one else would. But David, when he prays, he's not uncomfortable about being known by God because he knows God knows him in a relational way that he loves him, that he's part of God's people that have been rescued. So to be hemmed in, if you're in danger, is, is no fun. But if you're in, hemmed in by the almighty God who loves you, praise the Lord. You hem me in behind him before and you lay your hand on me. This is a single individual talking about God's hand being on him. And we know it's not in judgment and wrath because he would have died in the moment, right? It's a hand of love and guidance and protection and care and love. And so now David, he praises the Lord. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. How can you know everything about me? Every word, every thought, even before those thoughts are formed and those words are spoken, how can you know my every deed, all of my struggles, all of my weakness, all of my sins, and still have your hand on me? Such knowledge of this care is too wonderful for me. I can barely understand it. It's too lofty for me to attain. Praise the Lord. While I was looking at this psalm, I, I thought about the Apostle Peter because he's someone who God knows through Jesus. Keep something there in, in Psalm 139, but turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. 
He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out, put out a little from the shore. Simon's another name for Peter, by the way. Then he sat down, that is Jesus, and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John and sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. This is an interesting story because typically, I don't know if any of you guys fish. Any guys fish? Oh, nobody. <laughs> uh, some can fish. So it's been a long time since I fished. My father used to take, take uh, me and my sister fishing when we were young. Fishing typically is done at night or it's done at dusk. Uh, the fish come to service. You don't fish in the middle of the day. And so you have to imagine um, Peter is a commercial fisherman. He's not out there, recreation, out there for recreation just for fun. He's trying to make a living with his business partners in fishing. And they fish all night long and it just, it just wasn't a good night. And so here's this this, this rabbi, a religious figure, and he's got a lot of respect for him. He's allowed him to get into his boat and to teach, as we've just read. And when he finishes teaching God's word, uh, the religious guy is, you know, is like, mm, set out. Set out and, and, and let's see if we can catch some fish. And Peter thinks, oh, isn't that sweet? Uh, this, this guy, you know, is a religious teacher and he wants to see what, what our life is all about. It's okay. You know, we worked all night. We haven't caught anything. He's probably thinking it's the middle of the day. You don't catch fish in the middle of the day. But the amount of fish they catch is enormous. It fills up their boat, and it fills up the partner's boat. And as Peter is doing, collecting all these fish, he's like, I've never seen a catch like this before, nor has anyone else seen a catch like this before. And he's recognizing, wait a second, Wait a second, maybe this catch is, is related to the fact that this man is in my boat. This religious teacher, and he's just meeting, really getting to know Jesus at this time. And he's like, Lord, away from me, I'm a sinful man. When you experience God's power, you suddenly feel exposed. It's like, oh my gosh, God is right here with me and... And I'm not right with God. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus extends something very warm to Peter. Don't be afraid. Amen. What a great promise. There's so much more that could be said by, by Peter. I'm going to look at a few more of those verses. If you turn my, in your Bible to Matthew 16. This is after, this is probably a couple of years after the last incident. I'm going to be starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in, in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was a disciple. I'm going to read a little more. Verse 21. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this is not happening. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. <laughs> and so Jesus sees into Peter's heart. He asks all of his disciples, you know, who are people talking about, saying about me? And some people are saying, oh, John the Baptist, maybe risen from the dead. Maybe one of the old prophets has risen to life. But what about you? What do you say about me? And Peter, as you read through the Gospels, often the one who just speaks, and he gets the right answer. This is, you're the, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus recognizes that that is revelation from God. So you guys look like a pretty smart group of people, and you may know a lot of things. A lot of you are very well educated. But there's some things that are inside of you are not there because of your learning or your brilliance. They're there because of a revelation of God. There's lots of people who know the Bible. I imagine that there are lots of scholars that study and know the Bible better than I do. But that's not the same as having a revelation of the person that the Bible speaks about. To see him as God sees him, as his son, and as the Messiah sent into the world to bring about rescue to those who believe. So then Peter turns around and messes it up. Because Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he's going to be killed. That's not the kind of Messiah that Peter wants. He wants a military political leader who's going to boot out the Romans. He does not want to be in captivity. He wants his people free. And I imagine there's some of you here in various ways want your people free from injustice, right? So the idea of a Messiah or a political leader whatever dying just doesn't make sense. And he says, no, this is not going to happen to you. You're the man. You're the Messiah. But Jesus puts him in check. The origin of his thoughts come from Satan. So sometimes, brothers and sisters, to our shame, some of our thoughts that are contrary to the work of Jesus on the cross can originate from the devil himself. And Jesus knows it. From afar off, he sees the revelation of God in you. And from far off, he sees how in your weakness and your sinfulness you can actually be a tool for the enemy. Turn over to the next chapter in Matthew, to verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take out the first fish you catch, open his mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. For me, this is another wow. So this, the setting here is Peter, he's walking along and I'm not sure exactly where he is. Oh, he's, he's got to be close to the temple. And they collected, a t they collected a tax for the temple to continue construction of the temple. It was two drachmas. Anyone have two drachmas on them? Well, Peter didn't have that day. And so the people that were responsible for collecting the drachmas were like, uh, doesn't the teacher, your teacher, pay this drachma tax? And also implicitly he's also saying, don't you pay the drachma tax? He's like, 
Uh, yes. And so he goes, he comes to the Lord Jesus, and before he is able to actually share this incident with Jesus, Jesus says, as the first to speak, what do you think? Where do taxes come from, kings or children? From others. He says, well, the children are, ex the children are exempt, Jesus teaches. But so that you don't cause offense, go on throughout your line and catch the first fish you catch. So the Lord Jesus has full knowledge in this instance of Peter's actions and conversation away from him. And full knowledge of a fish carrying a four drachma coin. And full knowledge that if Peter throws out a line into this lake, a four drachma coin is going to be collected what exactly and precisely is required to pay their tax. And in so doing, I'm sure Peter was like, oh my goodness, this man knows everything. And indeed he does. Turn with me to Matthew 26. I'm moving quickly, and so we've got so much to cover. But hopefully you'll have time to meditate on these things for your, for your prophet. Matthew 26, verse 31. And this is the night before Jesus is crucified. This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even though I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. Turn over to verse 69 of the same chapter. This is after Jesus has been arrested and Peter has followed him. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he nodded before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Kind of an amazing thing. He's, he's met the Messiah, and he knows his power and his knowledge, and in this moment of weakness, he's denying him. Then Peter, he, that is Peter, went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and, and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And there he goes again. He denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing, standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them. I don't know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. The Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out bitterly. Turn with me to John chapter 21. Turn to verse 15. This is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and a group of people go out fishing. And then they meet the resurrected Lord Jesus. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. If we trace the life of Peter and his time with Jesus, you see again and again in his life, 
an example of complete and full knowledge. Whether it's on the shore and Jesus knowing that he would think, I'm a fisherman, I know better. Or whether it's in confessing Jesus as the Christ or saying that Jesus isn't going to die or with a four drachma coin or just exactly how to restore him. The man who denied him three times then to be asked, do you love me three times? And the Lord Jesus restores him. Like David, the author of our psalm, Peter is in covenant with Jesus. He's in covenant with the, the Father of our Lord Jesus. The Lord knows us so much. And this love isn't just about facts. Again, it's relational. Daniel preached a wonderful sermon on Psalm 1 a number of weeks ago. And from Psalm 1, you read, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. It's a careful looking. This is, it's not like a fly landing on an elephant and the elephant is aware of, about the fly but doesn't care about it. It just swats it away or ignores it. No, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel who saves his people watches over the way of the righteous. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who uses that name. There will be people who talk, on the last day who will talk about the works that they have done in the name of Jesus. But Jesus nevertheless will say, I never knew you. So knowledge is more than factual. It's relational. Second Timothy uses a verse that I think is very appropriate to, when thinking about this. It's from Second Timothy chapter 2. And it reads, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But the Lord knows those who are his. Not just intellectually, but he's got a loving relational connection with him. Amen. So verses 1 through 6, the psalmist is saying, you know me, Lord. Let's push on. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I sit on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even if I, even if I say, verse 11, excuse me, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will, be, will not be night to, dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness as, as light to you. If we were to sum up the teaching here, it would be, you, or you, Lord, are wherever I go. He says, rhetorically, where can I go from your spirit? There's no place that the spirit of God is not. If you remember from Genesis chapter 1, it's the spirit of God who's, who's hovering over the deeps of the waters. And he continues to reside throughout the universe as the active agent of God's will, moving in creation, revealing the Lord Jesus. There is no escape from his spirit. Where can I flee from your presence? One of the commentaries here that I've read was saying the idea of presence could also be translated countenance, for those of you who used to read those King James Bibles, or the face of God. It's like his face is right there, living before the very face of God. And so he's, he's considering now the fact that not only is God aware of him, 
not only is he relational with him, but he's always, always with God. God is always with him. God just doesn't know him from a distance, but he's present with him. And then he begins to use some turns of phrase. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the, bed in the depths, you are there. So high or low. Again, that's a turn of speech. So it's not just high or low, but it's everything in between. God is present. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, it's a poetic view of how the light begins to shine across the sky on a sunrise. How many of you have seen a sunrise? And you've seen the light start off slowly and then suddenly, boom, the light fills the sky. And so David uses the poetry of wings and its speed. And he says, if I sat on the far side of the sea, and from his perspective, that would have been towards the west, towards the Mediterranean. So he's saying, from the east, where the sun rises, to the west. So up and down, east and west, and everything in between, God is. God is present. And he says in verse 10, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Turn with me to John chapter 10, keeping a marker in Psalm 139. Verse 22, John 10, 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you know anything about John, this is a ridiculous question. Verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And then what does he say? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, if we would continue to see the story, it's amazing. They want to throw stones at him and kill him, and he defends his actions and his words quite well. But what I want you to see is that Jesus identifies himself as a good shepherd whose people follow him. They're close to him. And he's close to them because he says, they're in my hand. And not just my hand, but my father's hand. Because in reality, my father and I, we are one. Back to the psalm. Verse 10. Even there your hand will guide me. The Lord guides us as a loving shepherd. Your right hand will hold me fast. That is, he's giving us eternal life and we will never perish in Christ Jesus. That's the hand of our Savior. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. I don't know if you had a time in your life where, or a current time in your life where you do things you think are in secret. Things at night, things that no one else sees. There's nothing dark to God. There is no hiding. The night is like the day to him. Darkness is as light to you. Why is all this true? Why is it true that the Lord knows David so well? 
Why is it true that David, that God is present in David's life all the time and wherever David goes? Why is that true? Look at verse 13. The very first word there is for. When you see that, you know that this is giving an explanation. How is this possible? That God knows him so intimately and is always present. Verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David understands God's presence and knowledge of him fundamentally rooted in the fact that God made him. This is not detached theology like God is omniscient, uh, God is omnipresent, he's omnipotent. No, this is personal knowledge. And he knows that God knows him and is present with him all the time because he's the creator. The very first spiritual lessons you get in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning. And everything flows out from that. If God can speak all things into existence by his word and maintains all things by his word, then he is always present and his knowledge is always perfect. But David praises him for making him. You created my inmost being. This is a creature saying to his creator, I live because of you. And if you adopt this prayer, this is you as a human being saying to your maker, I was made by you. That's the starting place we should all come to. I still remember my father sitting on a porch porch when I was a little boy, maybe four or five years old, and then pointing out and saying, God made all of this, and he made you. And the same is true of you, each of you. You are created and made to be in God's very image. All the biology that makes up who you are as a man or a woman, God is the one who formed that. And David says, you knit me in my mother's womb, it's the idea of he's the one who fashioned all the sinews and all the organs and everything that makes up the human body. He is the one who fashioned it. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's considering his hand. He's considering his eyes and his ears. He's considering his ability to move. And he's like, God, you made this. This is amazing. Verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Brothers and sisters, let's praise the Lord because our creator has wonderful works. He says, I know that full well. He says, my frame, that is my skeleton, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And the depths of the earth is a a turn of speech to refer to the womb in that, in that culture. And the idea of weaving is presenting the idea of many threads being threaded together like a tapestry. When I was made in the secret place, when I was being formed and developing in my mother's womb, you were there and you saw me. Brothers and sisters, if God the creator weaves and makes us in the womb, then there is purpose for your life. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are God's handiwork, created for good works, prepared well in advance by God Almighty. Your life has purpose in Christ Jesus. Your eyes saw my unformed body, verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now we're just going beyond, beyond. 
Not only does he know my body, but he knows my whole life every day. Honestly, standing up here, I don't know what today's date is. (laughs) You don't have to tell me. (laughs) But God knew every detail of this day, yesterday, a week ago, in eternity. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, the book of life for those who are in that book. Before one of your days came to be, and you came out of your womb, your mother's womb, that is, before you cried or spoke, before you understood good or bad, every last day to the day of your death, from conception to death, your life has purpose in God. Verse 17. So when David considers this, he's like, oh my goodness, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I don't even know my own thoughts, my own words half the time. I don't remember what I said last week, but here is a God that knows every word, every thought, every movement, every interaction. Every weakness, every strength, every failure, every success, every lazy moment, every productive moment, every relationship. And he's trying to comprehend this. And I'm going to use my imagination. Maybe he's imagining not just for himself, but for everyone he knows and everyone he doesn't know. And he's like, how is this possible? How great is this God who has such comprehensive knowledge? In verse 18, he says, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And then he says, when I wake, I'm still with you. So I go to sleep and I wake up and you're still there with me. I can sleep. I can be awake. This living God is with me. What? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Wherever we go, he is present in an active way if we are in covenant with this Lord. Verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Oh, we have a turn of thought here. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. God is a holy God. He is just and he is righteous. In his righteousness, he does not overlook sin. He brings judgment to it. And one day, all things will be laid bare, naked before him. Those who are in righteous covenant will will learn about that later. But those who are not in covenant with him, the prayer of David is for their destruction. He says, slay the wicked. Kill them. I want no parts with them. So if you jump over to Romans, you see the very wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. People that live without God just doing their thing and people that are consciously rebelling against God. The very wrath of God is revealed against that. This is not new, this idea of God's wrath. 
You see, it's very rude from the very beginning in Genesis where there's judgment placed upon the very first human beings to be put out of the garden. And then later in Genesis, where all the entire human race, except for eight people, are, are killed or drowned, except for Noah, his sons, and their family. God does not overlook sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't forget about it. He doesn't play with it. What God does is he judges it. And King David is well aware of that. He's called on the covenant of the Lord that rescued the Jewish people from bondage, but also slaughtered the army of Egypt, right? In salvation, one nation was destroyed. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. David has no, no desire to be with those that are violent. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. He characterizes these people as those that mock and hate God's name. That's not just referring to his name, but that's to his character. The idea of a holy God, a just God, a God of love, a God of commitment, a God of peace. They hate that God. And so David so aligns himself, so associates himself with this God, he puts himself in that same position. I'm going to hate what you hate. Verse 22, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So now when David speaks this, this is in the Old Covenant, right? And the truth of God's judgment on the wicked is as true now as it was then. But there was a measure of revelation that was still yet to come. And that is in our Messiah. David, the writer here, was promised that through him there would be an everlasting kingdom that would be established. And that Messiah, his descendant, is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus in his teaching, as we've read, has talked about how we must die and, and how we must be rejected and how we must be crucified and raised from the dead. And he explains the purpose for this in Matthew chapter 20. And you can also see it in, in Mark 10. He says, my, my life is given as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on that cross, when he was crucified, he cried out the beginning verses, verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God in his grace, to those of you who believe, didn't overlook your sin, forget about your sin, and it's just punishment but place it upon his son who took it willingly. That was his purpose. The son of man came to serve. I am the good shepherd and I laid down my life. And that meal the night before, he says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for many for the forgiveness of sins. So just as God to Moses reveals a covenant name, God has continued to reveal him in most fully in the life of Jesus Christ. For when the angel gave instructions to Joseph about what to name him, he said, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves. We have a covenant name in Jesus, the very Messiah. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and he will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. So God sent 
a man, his son as a man into the world to be the righteous one, to live that life that we could not live, a holy life without sin, tempted in every way like we are, but yet he did not sin. He cried out to his father who could deliver him, and he was delivered. He was delivered by, from death by being raised from the dead. That's quite a deliverance. Because he prays, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass me, but not your, my will, but your will be done. He drinks that cup. And before he breathes his last breath, he says, it is finished. What is finished is the perfect work of Christ on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. In Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. In Christ Jesus, there is a covenant name. Earlier I read to you from 2 Timothy, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Brother, sister, if you are here and you've been listening and, and you're well aware now in, in God's presence of his awareness of all your thoughts and words and deeds and ways, and you know that you are not in covenant relationship with God Almighty, call on him. Save yourself from this generation and call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that when you, like David, say a psalm like this, search me, there will be no fear. You will know his hand upon you, holding you with the promise of eternal life. Turn away. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now David is praying for God to search him. He knows God has already searched him. But now he's saying, God, search me. Some people, when they're exposed to the light, the light of God's truth, they run and they hide. But not David. He's pressing and saying, shine your light on me. Expose in me the things that I hate. I don't want to be a hypocrite and ask for judgment on others while I myself am living in sin. Open me wide open like a surgeon, but more than a surgeon could ever do. You created my inmost parts. Look in my inmost parts and cleanse me and search me and heal me. See if there's any offensive way in me. He's asking for it. He's in covenant with a great God, and he's not indifferent to sin at all. He's not like, oh, I've been forgiven. Now I can live any way I want to. No. He's like, you're the God who rescued my people. You're the God that's closer than close. You're the one who's made me and ordained all my days. You're the one whose hand is on me and holds me and guides me. I know you love me. Search me. Cleanse me. See if there's anything offensive within me. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you are in darkness, what you want to do is come into the light. Come into the light that shines in the face of Jesus, the one Savior. See if there's any offensive way in me 
in how I eat. See if there's any offensive way in me in how I listen to music. See if there's any offensive way in me in how I plan to get to work. See if there's any offensive way in me how I treat my spouse, my children, that neighbor that I can't stand. See if there's any offensive way in me. Is there any offensive way in me in what I do in private or in public? In the way I dress, the way I speak? Is there any offensive way in me in what I fail to do? The failure to pray, the failure to love, the failure to forgive, the failure to work. Search me and lead me in the way everlasting. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he continued to uncover who God was and to reveal who he is. And he says to the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you know the way. And, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the way everlasting. And so we see in Jesus the way everlasting. And we see in him, he is the fulfillment of David who has the kingdom everlasting. Jesus is the everlasting king, and he is the everlasting way, and he is the everlasting life. Father, search us. Search us and know us. We're so grateful for life, how you wove us and knit us and brought us to this day. Turn the hearts of those who don't know you towards you to call on your name, the name of the Lord Jesus, crucified from sin, raised from the dead according to scriptures and eyewitnessed by the apostles, ascended to your right hand where you wait for God Almighty to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Lead us in the everlasting way, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.